St. Warburg's Derby. So last week we kicked off a new um, sermon series and Andy uh, helped us think around the idea of uh, what it means to holy living. And uh, that's our new sermon series and holy obviously was whole living whole but also living holy lives. And both of those kind of words have the same root meaning. And so we're just going to spend the next few weeks thinking around some certain topics that help us to think those things through. I think next week uh, and the week after we're thinking a little bit about kind of ethical choices and some various other issues that we're going to talk about. But tonight we want to talk about anxiety. And um, we just want to say that we realize that as soon as I say anxiety, for those of you who suffer with anxiety, it might be creating an anxious moment already within you. And we, we want to be family, we want to be for each other, we want to love one another. This is a safe space. So if at any point anything that we talk about tonight just causes um, uh, emotions, if you need to get up and you need to walk to the back, if you need to leave, do whatever. We, we love you, we're for you, and we want to kind of tackle this subject sensitively, but openly. We want to be a church that talks about some of these types of things. So um, that's what we're going to do tonight. And um, I've invited my friend Ruth to come and uh, share with us tonight, because um, I phoned you uh, a couple of weeks ago, saying that I was going to, we're going to talk about anxiety and um, kind of work it through. And I was just like, Ruth, what would you say? And she was so good, I thought, you know, instead of me trying to say what she's told me on the phone, it's better to get her here herself and actually have a conversation together. So can you please welcome Ruth? Wow, that is quite the welcome. Thank you. Um, Ruth, why, what, apart from the fact that you're my friend, why have I invited you here? What, what, what gives you any right to talk about this issue? Um, good question. Uh, so I have worked with vulnerable people for about 15 years. I know I don't look old enough. I only look about 13. Um, but I've worked in many different capacities with um, vulnerable families and young people for about 15 years in various settings. Uh, I'm a social worker, so I've just gone back to the world of social work. But for the last two years, um, I've been working for a charity called Youthscape, who really want to try and help the local church get back to um, youth ministry. And in that, I, did, I looked after everything to do with mental health for that charity and young people, whether that be anxiety or self-harm, depression. I wrote a course on anxiety. I've just written a parent's guide to anxiety. So anxiety has been my bread and butter probably for the last two years. Um, but I've worked with people with varying mental health problems um, for about 15 years. Young people, adults, the whole, the whole lot. So firstly, try, can we ask you, what define anxiety to us? I mean, we, we've heard this phrase. What, what is it? What, what is the stuff that everyone's telling us about? Well, I'm going to say something that people might find a little bit controversial now, but actually, first and foremost, anxiety is an emotion. So anxiety can tip into being um, a mental health disorder. But first and foremost, anxiety is an emotion that we all carry. And lots of people have started saying, I've got anxiety. And my response often to that is, yeah, me too. Because actually, anxiety is vital to keep us safe. Um, so when, when we become anxious, it creates what we call a psychological and a physical response. So stuff happens in our mind and stuff happens in our body. So we'll get a beating heart our palms will sweat our mouth might go dry 
We might do a thing called ruminating. Anybody heard of ruminating? So ruminating is when questions go round or the same thoughts go round and round your head. But actually, we need anxiety to keep us safe. And we don't want to eradicate anxiety from society because actually, if a lion walked in here now, it would be the release of adrenaline and cortisol, which is what happens when we start to feel anxious, that would keep us safe. So some of us when faced with the beast, would say, I can fight this. I can absolutely go for it. There's nothing to fear. I can fight it. Others of us would say, I'm out of here. That's what we call the flight response. And then others of us would say, I don't know what to do. And that's what we call the freeze response. And that's what happens typically um, when we start to feel anxious. Anxiety can become a mental health condition. So there's five conditions that come under the umbrella of anxiety. I'm going to see if I can remember them. So generalised anxiety disorder, OCD, phobias, which includes social anxiety, PTSD, and, oh my gosh, the fifth one's gone out of my head. Um, yeah, it'll come to me. I'll, I'll try and remember it. But, so there's, there's that, they come under the, the um, umbrella term of anxiety. Sorry, OCD, PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And post-traumatic stress disorder. So for a long time, we've thought that um, the only people that can get PTSD are those people that were war veterans. That's absolutely not true. Uh, People can get PTSD for lots and lots of different reasons. Emotional trauma um, can cause people to continually remember the emotional trauma that happened. Uh, OCD is incredibly complex. Um, Obsessions and compulsions are incredibly complex to deal with, but that would also come under the umbrella of anxiety. So obviously there's a there's a kind of scale from kind of anxiety that we all feel about lions walking into the church. We did have a mouse the other week, but just as anxiety inducing for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, I froze yeah. completely. Yep. Um, and got a proper man to deal with it. Yep. Um, uh, Anna. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> um, I was going to ask a really sensible question. Oh, no, um, sorry. Right, so there's this scale. So, yeah. so from the anxiety that we all feel about various different things to obviously the stuff that's seriously major and um, everything else. What's kind of, how does it, if you went to a doctor or if you went to see, what, what's the skipping, the tipping point on these things from just anxiety that we normally feel in the day-to-day through to something that needs a bit more help? So excessive worry is often the start of anxiety. Um, worrying about worrying. So anxiety is fear of the unknown, whether that's speaking in, in public, sitting an exam, going to a social event. It's the fear of the unknown. And it's that fear that can become life limiting. But excessive worry is a big part of anxiety. So I'm a very, very anxious flyer. And on the day that I fly anywhere, I excessively worry about what's coming next. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm worried that we're not going to make it to the airport. When we get to the airport, I'm worried we're not going to find a parking space. When we find a parking space, I'm worried we're not going to make it through security. And this goes on and on and on, and often ends with me kind of crying at some point in the flight and saying to my husband, we're not going to die, are we? But... um, So what happens when I fly is that as soon as one anxious thought leaves my head, there's another one that's in there. 
And day to day, for people who have anxiety disorders, that's what it's like. Um, That rumination, that excessive worry, sleeplessness often goes hands in hand with anxiety. I'm not just talking about struggling to get to sleep occasionally or not getting a good night's sleep. I'm talking about um, sleep, chronic sleeplessness. That's a big part of anxiety. So if you think that you're worrying about things that perhaps you wouldn't have been worried about previously, that would be the kind of tipping point for me. If you're worrying about sitting in an exam or speaking publicly, that's totally normal. That doesn't mean you have an anxiety disorder. And actually what I think we need to do is get some emotional literacy about what anxiety feels like because there are situations that will make us feel anxious and that's absolutely normal and that's absolutely okay. So therefore, what do people... What do people need to do if they're feeling anxious or kind of feel like they might be in a, in a, uh, a darker place with anxiety? What's your recommendation? Um, journaling is really good for anxiety. The great thing about journaling is what it does is it helps you to figure out any triggers. Is there really big certain situations that make you feel very anxious? What are those triggers? Is there a way that you could avoid them? Or is there a way that you can sort of kind of try them out and see what happens. So kind of monitoring and looking for your triggers, journaling can really help with that. Um, The other thing that journaling can help with is if you've had a bad week, you can think you've had a really bad week. If you've journaled, you might have had a better week than you realise, but your brain has this way of just telling you all the bad things that have happened. So having a journal that you look back over, good weeks, bad weeks, not, not great weeks, that's a really good idea. If you're struggling to sleep, Um, there's a reason why midwives tell you to get a baby into a routine so quickly because the baby starts to realize when sleep is coming and sometimes we need to do that as adults too so it might be that you think I'm going to take a warm bath I'm going to drink some warm milk if you want to be asleep by 10 30 try and go to bed at you know half nine something like that read maybe for a little bit listen to some music Have a notepad by your bed with a pen if you wake up in the middle of the night feeling anxious, feeling worried. Panic disorder was the fifth one, by the way. Um, So if you wake up feeling (laughs) feeling worried or anxious, you can pick up the pad and write down all the things. Just to say on panic disorder, um, if you're ever with somebody who's having a panic attack, don't tell them to calm down. Because nobody in the history of the world has ever calmed down We're being told to calm down. And actually what's happening in a panic attack is that your brain is completely flooded with adrenaline and cortisol. And when people say they have a panic attack, they might say, I felt like I was going to die. That is not an exaggeration. People who have panic attacks feel like their heart is going to pump out of their chest. And the most important thing to do is to get them to breathe, because what you want to do is to flood the brain with oxygen. So if somebody comes to you and they're having a panic attack, the best thing you can do is a breathing exercise where you count to seven, you get them to breathe in, get them to hold it for as long as possible so all the oxygen runs around their body, and then get them to breathe out slowly. That might work, but you might have to repeat that 10, maybe 20 times. Panic attacks can last up to an hour, and some people can have them in their sleep. And they are totally debilitating, and they are totally frightening. So the most important thing that you can do is to flood the brain with oxygen, and that's about calm reassurance and lots of deep breathing. At that kind of level, obviously we would recommend that people go and talk to their GP, talk to their doctors, and see what other forms of help there are. I mean, is there anything else? 
Yeah, so if you feel like excessive worry is becoming an issue and perhaps your anxiety is becoming really life-limiting, I would definitely recommend you go to your GP. Talking therapies can be really helpful. CBT is quite helpful for these kind of, uh, which is cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, they could, that can be quite helpful for these kind of disorders. But if you feel like your anxiety is limiting your life, then I would absolutely urge you to go and see your GP. If anxiety isn't limiting your life... You probably don't have an anxiety disorder. You probably just feel anxious in certain situations. And that's absolutely okay. Just, well, just one more thing I want to say quickly on OCD. Sorry if I'm taking too much time. Um, one thing on. I want to say really quickly about OCD is, how would you feel if I'd have come in here and said I had a terrible heart condition and it was meant I was going to die in a couple of weeks and you found out it wasn't true? How would you feel about that? A bit annoyed? Find it a bit weird? Think, why did she say that? Yes. So why do, we, why do we say that about OCD? Because people will say to me, oh, they like a tidy DVD collection, they've got OCD. That's absolutely wrong. OCD is totally debilitating. Washing your hands 64 times a day, that's OCD. Checking your car is locked 36 times, that's OCD. We would never, ever, ever, with physical disorders, say we had something when we didn't. So let's stop doing it about mental health. Because it's not okay. Because for those people who are living with OCD and it's debilitating, it's actually quite hurtful. So next time somebody says, I like a tidy car, don't say you've probably got OCD. Because it's just not helpful. It doesn't help anybody. And it doesn't help those people who are living with it. So why, why have we seen a rise in anxiety over these last few years? It seems like it's, there's almost an epidemic of it sweeping our nation at this time. Uh, any ideas about why, why that is and what's going on? Well, we've seen a real drop in teenage pregnancies, drugs and alcohol. We've seen a real rise in social anxiety, isolation, depression. And when you look at any stats, the axis where that starts to happen is 2007. Does anyone know what happened in 2007? The first iPhone was released. So actually what we've started to see is a decline in a generation going out and getting drunk and getting pregnant, but we've seen an increase in a generation who feel the loneliest perhaps and the most socially isolated that they've ever felt. And I don't want to stand here and say that smartphones are the root of all evil or that social media is a terrible thing, but I have a little bit of an analogy about social media. I think we're where we are with social media, where we were about five years ago with sugar. So I don't know whether you remember that it came out about five years ago that sugar was the enemy, not fat. But we can't stop consuming it because it tastes so good. Even though it's so bad for us, we're like, just give me all the sugar, man. It's the best. And that's exactly the same with social media. And the more you go with this social media sugar analogy, the more it sort of makes sense. Because we can't stop consuming it. Because there's something that it does to us. There's hormones that are released that feel so good that we, we long for that like, we long for that little heart on Instagram. We look at how many people have viewed our stories because it does something in our brain, exactly like sugar does something in our bodies. And I think what's really important is that we start to be nutritionalists in our own lives around this thing that is social media. So I had the privilege of going down and talking to some of the young people at Holy Trinity Brompton a few months ago, and I asked them what their favorite thing that they'd, they'd done as a youth group. And pretty much all of them said a thing called digital detox, which is where they came in, 
They handed over their phone and they had an evening where they didn't have to worry about posting stuff on social media or looking at what their friends were doing. They could just live in the moment. So I don't know, maybe as a church you could do some challenges, say you're going to you know, delete the app you use the most and talk about it in your small groups, but just start to be more nutritional around how we help this generation that's struggling so much with social anxiety and isolation to better navigate the world that's social media. I'm hearing you say all these things, knowing that you love Instagram. Absolutely. Everyone should follow Ruth on Instagram. She's very funny. Um, so what, have you got any kind of tips? Because, I mean, again, on social media, like I, I know that like my brother's in Australia. So if I want to talk to my brother, I can do. I can connect with him. But, so it's not all bad. But what, have you got any kind of practical things that we can do around that? Yeah, I mean, so what I think that... that that my generation know is that social media is an extension of my relationships it's not my real relationships and so I think it's about how do we help um, a generation that feels so socially anxious because they don't have to put themselves in social situations Um, if I wanted to see my best friend when I was 15 I probably had to pick up the landline ring her landline speak to her mum get on my bike, ride round to her house, knock on her door, speak to her mum again, say hello to her granddad, all right, granddad, hiya, say hello to her brothers, before I actually got to see Catherine. If my nephew, who's 15, wants to see his best mate now, he takes his phone out of his pocket and he rings him. So I think it's about helping us to realise that that's fantastic, but it does have an impact on how we feel. So things like digital detoxes are great. Could you delete your most used app for a week maybe a week's too long maybe you could do 24 hours I deleted Instagram over Christmas for a bit and um, it was the best thing I did actually because actually what it helped me to do was to live in the moment with my family and not care what other people were doing but more importantly not care what other people thought of me And I think we can get into this mindset of thinking that's the most important thing, what everybody else thinks of me, and me looking at what everybody else is doing going, oh man, I wish I had their life, is so damaging to our brains, especially if we're still in adolescence and our brain isn't fully formed, and the brain doesn't stop fully forming until the age of 25. So we need to help young people to um, realise that that's an extension of relationships. It's not the real life. Some of them have realised that their brains aren't formed Their brains are still forming. Um, It's all right for you. I've got no excuse. Mine apparently is fully formed. Fully formed. uh, That's worrying. What, therefore, can we do as a church? How can we respond to the anxiety epidemic? Um, I don't know if you remember the story in the Bible where Jesus meets with the blind man. Before he does anything, the first thing he says is, what can I do for you? And actually, we read that and think, well, of course, the blind man wants to see. But Jesus, even though he's God and he knows everything and all creation is under him, he still stops in that moment and says, what can I do for you? He doesn't assume that he knows what the blind man wants. And I think as as church in the UK, we need to start saying to people, what can we do for you? Don't assume that people want you to lay your hands on them and pray for them. Stop. If it's good enough for Jesus, I don't know about you, but it's good enough for me. 
And if Jesus was able to stop and say to that man, what can I do for you in that moment, then I need to do the same. And I, I'm, not, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to myself here, but I think the response of being humble enough to stop and be with somebody and look them in the eye and say, what I'm hearing is this has got really tough, what can we do for you, is so powerful. And I think we can get into the culture of writing prescriptions for people almost and saying, do this, do this, do this, do this, pray, your Bi- pray and read your Bible, don't be anxious about anything, and we think that's the answer. When actually, sometimes all people need is for us to say, like Jesus did to that blind man, what can I do for you? We're not experts in people's lives. People are experts in their own life. And actually, we need to remember that, yes, we can bring something to that life, but actually the most important thing we can do is listen. And it might be that somebody says, I don't want you to pray for healing. I've done that so many times, and I don't feel like it's worked or God's really walking this with me at the moment, but actually it's going to be a real struggle for me to get out of the house and get some food shopping. Can you help me that way? And Jesus is practical too, right? Jesus is a practical person. So I think it's about stopping and understanding that people are the experts in their own life. I'll never forget, I had a young person I worked with. um, He he was leaving care and I'd just come out of university and I was like, I know everything about social work, I'm going to change the world. And this 16-year-old said to me, Ruth, I don't feel like you listen to me. And I was like, what? I felt sick. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the worst social worker ever. And I said, I'm so sorry, what do you mean? He said, every single time I finish speaking, you open your mouth and try and give me advice. And sometimes I just want you to listen. And sometimes the best thing we can do for people is nod while they cry and say, this has got really tough. What can I do for you? So that would be the first thing that I would say. The second thing would be... Sorry, I just wanted to interject at that point. That's authentic community. That, that's that's yep. the vision of what we're trying to yep. build here. And so that's a sense of people really being for each other, and loving them and saying to them, what, what, what do you yeah. want? How, how can I help you? Absolutely. I think the other thing to remember is that, so Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's um, holding the cup of suffering, and he says, if you can take this cup of suffering for me, everybody's got their own cup. Everybody is carrying their own cup. And for, for me, me and my husband have been trying to have a baby for five years. That's my cup of suffering. And if God could take that away, it would be the best thing he could ever do. It doesn't mean I'm any less whole because I haven't had a baby. It doesn't mean I'm any less whole because I'm holding an anxiety disorder or a mental health condition. It means that I can find God in that moment in, and, and be whole with God. So what is it that we're carrying in our cup? What is it that we would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus, if you can take this cup of suffering, I'd like you to take it right now. So helping people to to carry that cup. How do people walk with mental illness? How do they walk with it when perhaps they feel like they've been healed and then another episode of mental illness, illness comes? What's that like? How dark can that feel for people when they think God has taken the cup of suffering and then actually it turns out they've got to continue to walk this journey feeling mentally unwell? That's really tough. And actually, the same response comes, what can we do for you? It's about revisiting that point again and saying, what can we do for you this time? How can we help you this time? So helping people to understand what their cup of suffering is, I think, is really profound and really helpful, but not promising that God's going to take that away. (laughs) But actually, how do we help people to live with that and carry that, even in the bleakest, darkest moments? How do we help people? And then I suppose the story for me that always really gets me is the story of Lazarus. And that's because um, 
I don't know if you know it, but there's the shortest verse in the Bible. And those two words, Jesus wept, are so grammatically simple, but they're so complex in telling us who Jesus is. So picture the scene. Jesus is rocking up. Mary's crying. Lots and lots of other people are crying. And Jesus knows in that moment that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He could be a serene like guy, gentle, know what he's going to do. And what does he do? He stands and weeps too. And that shows me the heart of God. Because actually Jesus knew what was coming next. And that all of this weeping would turn into laughter and worship and joy. But in that moment of that deep pain, he cried. Because he feels it. He feels this cup of suffering that we carry. He asks us, what can I do for you? And his tears are big enough. But what we see in that moment is that God stands with us and he weeps when things get too much. And those two words, Jesus wept, remind me that actually whatever I bring to God, when I look up at him, he's crying massive tears with me too. And that's so important that we help people to remember that soft, gentle heart of the Father. I don't know if I've got any other questions. Okay. Other than, if, is there anything else that you want to say? Because <laughs> I could listen to you forever. Keep going. Um, I just think the church, I think this is amazing that Phil has actually um, talked about this. The church really need to wake up, actually. Um, and I don't say that lightly, but we really need to wake up and realise that there are some really broken people who wouldn't come to church. It's like the last place that broken, hurting people would come. And I don't know about you, but that absolutely breaks my heart. Because more importantly, I know that breaks Jesus' heart. And I don't have to look very far for the ministry of Jesus to see that he walked with broken, hurting people. And he didn't think he had all the answers, even though he was God. (laughs) He walked with them and he loved them. And I feel like the church has got a lot to do to realise how we properly work with and walk with broken people. And my prayer for the church is that we look further to Jesus and we see what he did and we learn that actually people need God, but also people need really practical help, love and support, and that's okay too. I spoke about this at um, a conference a few weeks ago and I opened the floor to questions and a guy put up his hand at the back and he said... You know, the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but present all your prayer and requests to God. And, and that is so simplistic to somebody who is living with anxiety every single day. And for some people, that mantra to say that biblical passage over and over and over again might be really helpful. But to others, it's the worst possible thing we could do, which is why that first question, what can I do for you, is so vitally important. Can we thank Ruth?